In the psalm, David is troubled and suffering very much so. And as usual, he prays to God. And Holy Spirit willing, this was recorded for us to go through. But again, as I've said so many times, explanation and application, please, church, let us all remember to apply these principles, to apply these scriptures and demonstrate them in our own lives by faith. This is not a history lesson. This is not a history book. This is the word of God and how we as a church should respond to our Lord in our own troubles as well. In this prayer, though he does tell the Lord of his innocence, interestingly, he tells God that he's innocent, but he is not denying that he's without sin. But rather, David is above reproach. Above reproach. He affirms the intent of his heart, which is to do the will of God. David puts himself on trial before God as he asks God to judge him and vindicate him. He displays his regard for God, his hatred of sin, and his hatred of sinners, and his affection towards the ordinances of God. Most scholars agree that this is a protective psalm, a protective psalm. Verses 1 through 3 is a prayer for vindication and affirmation of innocence. Verses 4 through 5 is disassociation from evil. Verses 6 through 8 is affirmation of innocence and love for the Lord. Verses 9 through 10, again, is more disassociation from evil. And verses 11 through 12 is affirmation of innocence and prayer for redemption, sanctification, and holiness. So let us go over the first five verses. Verses 1 through 5. Judge me, O Lord. For I have walked in mine integrity. I have trusted also in the Lord. Therefore I shall not slide. Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my reins and my heart. For thy loving kindness is before mine eyes. And I have walked in thy truth. I have not sat with vain persons. Neither will I go in with dissemblers. I have hated the congregation of evildoers. And will not sit with the wicked. Of course, God is all-knowing. He already knows these things, but David still prays to God, telling him of these things in his life, of what David is not, or what David was not doing. And so, too, we as Christians in the New Covenant must pray to God always, letting God know our heart, even knowing he already knows. Verses 1 through 3, again, is a prayer for vindication and affirmation of innocence. Verse 1. The exposition begins. Judge me, O Lord. O God, judge me, for I have walked in mine integrity. I have trusted also in the Lord, therefore I shall not slide. Rather than David begin his prayer regarding his enemies, or maybe even perhaps for his enemies, he begins praying regarding himself. In the first three verses, this prayer is threefold. We see his need, his innocence, and God's fidelity. In verse 1a, David prays, Judge me, O Lord, for I have walked in mine integrity. This word judge in the Hebrew, shapat, means to pronounce a sentence, to punish, to govern, to litigate, avenge, defend, or to vindicate. 
Notice how he began with himself here in this prayer. He declares to God, O Lord, for I have walked in mine integrity. David begins with the prayer for vindication. Vindication is when God declares his servant to be innocent and avenges himself of his enemies and false accusers. We ought to pray that the Lord would judge us too before we ask him for any favors. We ought to pray that the Lord would judge us before we ever judge others. We ought to desire to be right with the God, to be right with the Lord, so to speak, before lest we pray like hypocrites. In verse 1b, David said, I have trusted also in the Lord, therefore I shall not slide. Though David might sound a little me-centered here, there's a lot of eyes. I have not walked in mine integrity. I have trusted in also in the Lord, therefore I shall not slide. But really it's not about I or the me or the my, myself or the I, which I call the false deity of me, myself or I. It's about whom he trusts in, whom he walks with, whom he puts his faith in. It's all about God whom he trusted in and only by the grace of God. So go I. Can this sinner have a prayer like that as well? Only by the grace of God, so go you. Can we have a prayer like that before our Lord? In other words, because he or we trusted in him, therefore he or we shall not slide. It is the goodness of God and God's fidelity that makes David right with the Lord. It's the goodness and the grace of God that makes him have a good standing with God. For us today, it is the goodness of God and Christ's righteousness that makes us right with God. We are all guilty sinners before God, but Christ vindicated us upon salvation, and he makes God's elect innocent before God. It is all about God and Christ of how we can have a good standing with God. Not only upon salvation and judgment day, but even in between through our growing in sanctification and growing in holiness. We see a lot of, a lot of the doctrine of sanctification throughout this sermon. So we're going to expound on sanctification because that is so important for us Christians. Verse 2. Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my reins and my heart. One of the benefits or advantages of having a weekly communion service is that we'll never forget that communion is today. That's one of the reasons why it was moved to a weekly Holy Communion service. Because every day, every Lord's Day is communion for this church. That way we will never forget what day it is, because it is every Lord's Day, And we will never forget to be right with the Lord before we even come to church. I've said it before. It just seems there's not enough time. A monthly communion service, as we read the scriptures about, let a man examine himself, that you would come to the Lord's table only with a repentant heart, that you're right with the Lord, that you've confessed your sins to him, that you've repented from your sins before we take the Lord's Supper again today. But the good news is, now that we do it every Lord's Day, we can do that every Lord's Day morning before we even come to church. So now, there's no excuse. Now there is time to be right with the Lord, Holy Spirit willing. 
David is not telling the Lord that he's a good person here. He's not telling the Lord that he's innocent here. But rather he's trusting and thrusting himself upon God and God's fidelity. Again, thrusting himself upon God and trusting in Christ today as in the new covenant. The Lord himself was giving his love and his truth. Uh, to the psalmist, and now David walks in his love and his truth. Verse 3 says, For thy loving kindness is before mine eyes, and I have walked in thy truth. Love without the truth is unbiblical, and truth without the love is unbiblical. It's only by God's love and God's truth that enables David to stand as he did. Today, only by God's grace can we stand as well. Love and truth or faithfulness are two aspects of God's divinity. God's love is always faithful. Therefore, the psalmist believes that God has motivated and enabled him to walk with integrity in his heart. To walk in integrity is is God's will for our lives. David is not being self-confident here. His confidence is in the Lord. Remember, in in verse 1, he said, It was in the Lord I have trusted. In you, God, I have trusted. That's what makes him whom he is. I often use the phrase that we as Christians should not flinch in the face of adversity. And that's basically what David was saying here, that he was without wavering. As it said, uh, and he said, I shall not slip. He now has an unfaltering trust with God. He's not flinching in the face of adversity. Take note that he's not boasting again in himself, but rather he's boasting in the Lord. As Brother Robin was reading the scripture to Corinth in the reading of the scriptures today, that with everything we do, whatever we eat or drink, we do it for the glory of God. We do it unto the glory of the Lord. On the contrary, We want to make sure that we're never like the Pharisees. The Pharisees would have the attitude, well, Lord, I'm not like them. Look at those sinners. How could they do such a thing? No, that's not the attitude we want to have. And it's not by accident that the Holy Spirit actually inspired this to be recorded in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, where the Pharisees had a terrible attitude, a self-righteous attitude. And it says in Luke 18, Also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and, and even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. By the way, I don't like it when a pastor or or a speaker brags about tithing, nor when they boast for tithing. I just don't like it. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I possess. I, I, I tithe, and I do this. Look at me, God, the Pharisee was saying. And Jesus said, and the tax collector standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
See, that's the attitude we must have. Not, God, look at me, I am this and I am that. But God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's true repentance. I tell you, uh, and again it goes on to say, the Pharisee, I cut it short there. I say, I tell you, this man, here's Jesus, I tell you, this man went down, to the speaking of the tax collector that just had said, God be merciful to me, a sinner, rather than the boaster. I tell you, this man, the tax collector who repented, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. See, it's always better. That we voluntarily humble ourselves before God. Before God humbles us against our, our own selves. Amen? Next in verses 4 through 5 is disassociation from evil. Again, more sanctification, more holiness, more growing in consecration. You know, one of the reasons why clergy, church history, had a clerical collar was to set themselves apart from the rest of the world so that they knew that's a clergyman there with the collar on. Of course, now a lot of hypocrites wear collars. But the truth is, is no Christian woman or Christian man or clergyman should have to wear a collar to make them stand out differently from the rest of the world. We should be so sanctified and so holy that they see that we're different from the world. We act differently, we dress differently, we respond differently, we have faith differently. Everything about us is different than the rest of the world. And I truly believe, church, that even a pastor is called to be consecrated from the congregation more than the rest of the congregation. In other words, I believe that a pastor is called to be above reproach more than the rest of the members of the church. We don't need a collar to set us apart. What we need is a lifestyle and a way of life that shows that we are, of course, different from the world, but the clergy is to even be different from the congregation in the sense that they have, they're growing in, in, in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're no better than the rest. But there ought to be more consecration. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, Titus 3, the qualifications for deacons are higher, and then the qualifications for elders, bishops, and pastors are even higher than that's what's required of a deacon. And it seems that many pastors today have seemed to forget about, about cons- being consecrated. Now next in verse 4, David says, I have not sat with vain persons. Well, God already knows us, but Lord, I have not sat with vain persons, neither will I go in with dissemblers. David's not hanging around with the wrong crowd. In verse 4a, I have not sat with vain persons. Remember last week, vanity, 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 it is all vanity. David's saying, I'm not sitting with vain persons. It is not a sin for us to sit next to a sinner because we too are sinners. Amen? But it can become sin. This word sit in the Hebrew, yeshab, means to dwell with, to remain with, to settle with, to marry, even to be married to the wrong person, to continue in, to endure, or to make inhabitant. This vain persons here is, is, is people are people that are deceitful or that are destructive 
that are immoral or idolatrous, and it's a sin to continue on with them. And it's also people in Hebrew that are wasting their time on on vain things. In other words, vanity, vanity, it's all vanity. That it's a sin for us to dabble with those type of people and have a relationship with those people. Remember the bumper sticker, N-O-T-W, not of this world? Remember when Jesus said, be unequally yoked with this world? Though the Lord already knows, but David was reassuring him that he is not sitting with these types of men. Sometimes we don't have a choice in the workplace. Our secular jobs put us with those type of men. It's very difficult, but we have to pray for sanctification. We have to pray that God would bridle our tongues, that we would not be a bad witness in the workplace. In verse 4b, he said, Neither will I go in with dissemblers. I will not sit with these people, Lord. I, I do not hang out with them, but I don't go in with dissemblers either. He's not with the hypocrites or the pretenders, he's saying. In other words, David was truly above reproach. The key word, above reproach here. And sadly, in the 21st century, the phenomenon called friendship evangelism has entered many local churches. It's an unbiblical teaching that says that we should make friends with the world uh, before sharing the gospel with them or somehow earn their respect or establish a rapport. Some have even said that we ought to get their permission first before we share the gospel with them. But what does the word of God say about worldliness? Well, he told Corinth, do not be unequally yoked with the world. And no, that's not speaking only to marriage. That's speaking being unequally yoked in our businesses, with the world, etc. James chapter 4, verses 4 through 5. Oh, adulterers and adulteresses, do ye not know that friendship with the world is an enemy of God? Do you not know that friendship with the world, you are enmity with Christ? In 1 John chapter 2, it says that if we love the things of this world, the love of the Father is not in us. Those are pretty serious charges. That's a high standard for the Lord's people. Recently, a youth pastor which you won't find in the scripture, a youth pastor uh, from a local Reformed church uh, had a conversation with me. He wanted to tell me that he thought that my distributing gospel tracts at a COVID testing center was, and I quote, ineffective. And why was I ineffective, according to him, according to his pragmatism, according to his beliefs of friendship evangelism? He said, because I was not wearing a mask that you should have a mask on because they have a mask on. Therefore, the gospel, my evangelism, is not effective. That's pragmatism. It's a cancer that's entered the church. To defend this friendship evangelism phenomenon or to defend sitting down and blending in with the sinners, they will twist Luke chapter 7 out of context. Well, doesn't the Bible say that Jesus is a friend of sinners? You know what? The Bible does say that Jesus was a friend of sinners. But oh my goodness, if we quote that out of context, we're blaspheming the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go over that passage because that's what's used often. Verse 31 and 34 of Luke 7 says, The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. This is the words of Christ in red. 
Jesus here in Luke 7 was not admitting that he's a friend of sinners. In context, he was rebuking the Pharisees who had just wrongfully called him a glutton. For wrongfully calling him a glutton, a drunkard, and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. This is the context. That you guys are calling me a sinner, you're calling me a glutton, you're calling me a wine bibber or a bartender or a drunkard. But Jesus was never a friend of sinners in a worldly sense, like we could be today. Jesus was not worldly. He was never worldly. He was perfect. He never sinned. He never accepted their sins. He never condoned their sins. He never acquiesced to their sins. He never tolerated their sins. And he never enabled them in their sins. In fact, those that he did associate with, or that he did sit down with, he called out their sins. He called them to repentance and salvation. Luke 5.32, Luke 15, and Luke 19. When Jesus met with the adulterous woman, he led her to himself, rebuking her and telling her, Go and sin no more. John 8. 3 through 11. When Jesus sat down with the half-breed, half-bred Samaritan woman and broke racial barriers, which nobody would cross, but he did, and he sat with the Samaritan woman at the well, he sat down with her, and what did he do? He called out her sins one by one, named each and every fornication and case of adultery that she was guilty of in John chapter 4. He wasn't a friend of sinners as many people suppose. So to anybody that's wrongfully ever accused Jesus of being a friend of sinners in a worldly sense, I strongly urge them to repent and not repeat. My wife and I were sitting in a a fairly healthy church. The preacher was an excellent expositor of God's word. One day he said, Church, uh, we, our denomination had purchased a new book. It's available in the foyer. And it was a book on homosexuality of how church should respond to homosexuality. How should we deal with that sin? And that was kind of a red flag to me, because why would I need a book to learn how to deal with homosexuality? It's almost discriminative that we would treat them differently, kind of, I was thinking. So I read the book, and though the author, which was a preacher from that denomination, did say that it is a sin, it's an abominable act, but he also normalized the sin, and normalized the sin equal with all other sins. And the scripture is very clear on sexual immorality. Very clear that it's a sin against our body and all other sin is a sin outside of the body. I actually did a topical study on the differences of sexual immorality compared to other sins. But I met with, I called the pastor, actually I emailed the pastor, and I didn't want to put him on the spot and not tell him what I was up to, but I asked for an urgent meeting And I told him in the email that I have a question, some problems with this book, and I'd like to meet with you. And he graciously met with me. We sat, and and, and he even told me that he reread the book a second time before our meeting in case he missed something and he disagreed with me. And here's what he said, which blew me away. And could I ever trust his teaching again? He said, Bill, don't forget, Jesus was a friend of sinners. That Jesus sat with sinners and he was a friend of sinners again a partial quote of one verse that's misunderstood by so many within the church today 
You see, whom we walk with, whom we stand with, whom we sit with. I wrote a book review on that, by the way, and, and put it on my blog because I think it's important for the church. We ought to be the watchman on the wall and warn the church of these things that are creeping in. But whom we sit with, whom we walk with, and whom we, st- whom we stand with matters much to the Lord our God. Otherwise, David would have never mentioned these things in his prayer that God decreed and inspired to be in this psalm. As it says in Psalm chapter 1, this is a beautiful psalm. I love it so much. Blessed is the man, it's gender neutral. Blessed is the man or the woman who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. This defines a Christian, verses 2 through 3. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bring forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. And this is verse, in the next three verses, verses 4 through 6, is the not Christian, the non-saved man, but the ungodly are not so. But they are like the chaff. They're the ones that walk, stood, and sit with sinners without any remorse or repentance. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly should not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. You're sitting, these, we sinners are sitting and standing in this congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. The way of the non-saved, the non-elect, will perish. So church, who are we walking, standing, and sitting with? As we move forward, the language gets strong. The world would call this hate speech, but the word hate is in here, and so we must discuss it. There's actually chapters in the Bible where hate is mentioned more than love, or where truth is mentioned more than love. We know that hell is mentioned more than heaven in the scriptures. Next, in verse 5, David says this, Praying to God, I have hated the congregation of evildoers and will not sit with the wicked. Not only will David not sit with them, he has hated them, he says. This word hate here is a strong word. In the the Hebrew, it means exactly what it says. God means what he says, and he says what he means. It means hate. Like David, we too should have a holy hatred for sin or any shape or form of sin or any lifestyle that parades it proudfully in our face. Any people group that parades their sin in our face, we should hate and despise that sin and the people group that does such a, same, that does such a thing. So you mean there's a time to hate? Yes, there is. Ecclesiastes 3, verses 1 through 11. To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to gain and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to sow. 
and a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time of war and a time of peace. Romans 12, 9 through 13. Listen to this, church. This is another definition of a biblical love. Let your love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Wow, what is a biblical love? Let your love be without hypocrisy. Not only hate what is evil, but abhor what is evil. Abhor it. It's a stench in the nostrils of a holy God. It's an affront to God. It brings reproach to Christ. And then it says, cling to what is good. Abhor to what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly, affectionate to one another, talking to Christians here, with Christians, with brotherly love, according to Christians, Christians treating Christians with brotherly love. This is not telling us how to respond to the lost world. With brotherly love and honoring, giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, hope, patient in tribulation, continually steadfastly in prayer, Distributing to the needs of the saints given to hospitality. That's a definition of this church. But what about the first verse? There's something we don't want to talk about too much. Is our love without hypocrisy? Do we truly hate what is evil? In Revelation chapter 3, Jesus complimented a church. Remember, five of those seven letters, he wrote seven letters to the seven churches, and five of those letters, they were strong rebukes. But we can learn from his letters because he always had a compliment. He always had a compliment before he rebuked five of those seven churches. And Jesus said in Revelation 3, uh, I, call, I call these people cold, carnal doctrinarians. They had all their doctrines right. Let's, let's, let's just imagine they were Reformed Baptists, fully confessional you guys got your doctrines right, your, your, your five points, your, you, you believe in the regular little principles of worship, uh, you're orthodox, you've got all these things right. But here's where you're messed up at, man. This is what Jesus said. Listen to this. These things, let this not be this church. These things say he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, Christ holds the seven stars in his right hand, walks in the midst of the seven gold lampstands, and Jesus says, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. God says you're doing a great job. I know your labor, your patience, and you can't even tolerate evil. That's a good thing for a Christian, right? You can't bear evil. Listen to this. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not. You question people that have come in and said they're prophets. You've questioned and tested people that says they're apostles when they're not. And you have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience. They're persevering. They're calling out liars. They're calling out false prophets and apostles. They're persevering in patience. And you have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. I hope the Lord can say that to us as a church, right? Amen? But listen to this. Nevertheless, I have this against you. That you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Let us not forget where we've fallen from. The muck, the mire, the pit of hell. Repent and do the first works. He calls them to repentance. 
or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And then he, he recalls them to repentance. He rebukes them. But look, at that, look here, comes another, here comes another compliment. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Jesus hated the Nicolaitans. And you hated them too, which is good. But listen to this. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Jesus gave him many compliments, affirmed him in many ways, but they left their first love. They become so cold and so carnal. Today we would call them cage stage Calvinists. Today we might call them the frozen chosen. You know, the Armenians are right, calling some Reformed folks and some Calvinists the frozen chosen because they've become cold, carnal doctrinarians. There is no more love. But at the same time, church, we're defending these doctrines with love. We must never water down the love, and we must never water down the doctrine. We must be balanced that theological tightrope that we must walk. Paul said in Ephesians 5, let us walk circumspectly. I like what one commentator said, and I know they didn't have minefields back then in the scriptures. It is a modern commentary, but it says to walk circumspectly in the Greek is tantamount to a soldier walking in a minefield, trying not to step on a mine lest he blow himself up and blow his whole his whole platoon up with a mind, walking circumspectly. That's what God calls and commands the church to do. It says in Romans 9.13, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. It says in Proverbs 20.16-19, These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven, an abomination to him. I love preaching this passage in front of abortion mills. Is they're ready to enter to slaughter the unborn child. These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among the brethren. Psalm 5, 4 through 6, I've done an exposition on this. I think it was an hour-long hour sermon just on these three verses, but listen to this. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Moving on to verse 5b. I know, get hot, it got hot in here for a second. That wasn't the temperature. God's word is very powerful and very offensive at times. Verse 5b, David said that he does not sit with the wicked people. 
Again, not a better than thou, or I'm, I'm not a haughty or prideful, arrogant attitude, not the attitude of the Pharisees, but Lord, I don't sit with these wicked. I'm not part of them. I want to be consecrated. I want to be set apart. I want to be holy because you are holy. In the context of walking in wisdom and walking in light, another passage from Ephesians 5, which is a beautiful passage to do an exposition on. Listen to this. Christians, from God to Christians. For you were once darkness. Church, you too were once in the world, once in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth finding out what is acceptable to the Lord, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. Not only we are to not have fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. For whatever makes manifest is light. Amen. Matthew Henry said this, of verse 5, And this also was an evidence of his faithfulness to his God, that he never associated with those who he had any reason to think were disaffected to religion, or were open enemies, or false friends to its interests. Note, great care to avoid bad company is a good evidence of our integrity, and a good means to preserve us in it. End of quote. This congregation or assembly of evildoers is in stark contrast to the congregation seen in verse 12. Next is verses 6 through 12. I will wash mine hands in innocency, so will I compass thine altar, O Lord, that I may publish with the voice of thanksgiving, and tell all thy wondrous works. Lord, I have loved the habitation of thy house and the place where thine honor dwelleth. Gather not my soul with sinners, nor my life with bloody men, in whose hands is mischief and their right hand is full of bribes. But as for me, I will walk in mine integrity. Redeem me and be merciful unto me. My foot standeth in an even place, and the congregation will I bless the Lord." Again, in verses 6 through 8, is an affirmation of his innocence, which God already knew, and his love for the Lord, which God already knew. Verse 6, I will wash mine hands in innocency, so that I will compass thine altar, O Lord. This expression, to wash my hands in innocence, is a form of worship, a form of worship to to desire to draw near to the Lord. And why? Verse 7, that I may publish with the voice of thanksgiving and tell of all thy wondrous works. So that we can boast in God, boast in Christ, brag all about him all you want. You can never go wrong with that. Let us publish our thanksgiving to the Lord. Let us boast in the wondrous works of God. That's why we testify to God that he saved us. That he saved us from from his wrath. When we publicly pray for our meals in in restaurants, we all know that's not to draw attention to ourselves. It's to publicly boast in our thankfulness to God. That we are boasting in the Lord and giving him a public 
declaration of thanks before a lost world. Publishing our thankfulness, as David said. Verse 8. Lord, I have loved the habitation of thy house and the place where thine honor dwelleth. David loves the Lord by declaring his love for the house of the Lord. Not the building, but the house of the Lord, the house of God. Today, the bride of Christ, the church. If we love the Lord, then we would love his church too. We would love those that inhabit the sanctuary. We would love each other very, very much. That's one of the prerequisites for membership now of this church is to read a simple book called Jesus Loves the Church, and so should you. Next in verses 9 through 10 is disassociation from evil. Here we see, we see that guilt by association again. That they're guilty by association again. Verses 9 through 10. Gather not my soul with sinners. O Lord, gather not my soul with sinners, nor my life with bloody men, in whose hands is mischief, and their right hand is full of bribes. David prays that in judgment, that he would not be gathered up with the lost. I guarantee God doesn't make no mistakes. He won't. But I tell you what, I I still kind of pray that sometimes. Oh Lord, please don't forget me. On Judgment Day, please, please take me in. I don't want to go to the smoking section. I mean, we're not going to lose our salvation. We believe in the P, in Tulip, the perseverance of saints. We ain't going to lose it. It's been said, if we can lose our salvation, I would have lost mine already because of my sin. Just because of my lack of faith, sometimes I would have lost my salvation. In the parable of the dragnet, um, I, this is a good, ex, good, a good passage to do an exposition on. Maybe we'll do it eventually. But in the parable of the dragnet, you know, in law enforcement, they have dragnet. You hear about getting caught in the dragnet. They did a crime. They did a sweep over in the Chino, Montclair, Ontario area recently where they captured a whole bunch of, uh, of gangsters in a crime suppression gang task force. And they served simultaneous search warrants simultaneously on multiple houses and got them all together and caught them as the news media called it a dragnet. We had a TV show in the 50s and 60s called Dragnet. Well, dragnets are biblical. And there's a dragnet right here mentioned in Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the dragnet, where God has his dragnet. And David was saying, get me in the right dragnet. Please don't capture me in the dragnet with all the bad guys, Lord. And thanks God for now in the New Covenant we have Christ. Nathan was a net man recently and landed a bass in a boat with a net. He was an excellent net man, by the way. You want to be captured by Christ. You don't want to be captured in his dragnet with all of the non-saved sinners. Jesus said in Matthew 13, verses 47 through 50, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which when it was full, they drew it to shore. They sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but threw the bad away. So it will be at the end of the age. And so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Christians, nets are biblical. Dragnets are real. There is a real dragnet out there. And David was saying, don't let me be in the wrong 
dragnet. A humble attitude. Not like the Pharisees. I'm not going to be in that dragnet. I'm not like them, Lord. David was praying, Lord, don't let me be snagged in that dragnet. Christ saved this church from the dragnet of condemnation and the dragnet that will be cast into the lake of fire. One way of demonstrating or expressing our love towards God is to display our hatred of sin. In other words, an evidence of true salvation is we would hate the things that God hates and love the things that God loves. My wife and I belonged to an off-road club for a long time. We loved it. We camped. It's unsafe to do some treacherous terrains by yourself. And so we went in teams. But the club was becoming more and more homosexual to where we're camping out in the hills somewhere. And we know that, well, wait a second, aren't we all sinners? Yes, we are. But there's something odd about a Christian, me, a Christian, knowing that the tent behind us are two sodomites. And there was more and more coming into the membership, more and more coming onto the board of directors. And pretty soon there was a large percent of the homosexuals in this off-road club. I was convicted, and we left that off-road club. Lord, don't let me be caught with vain persons. Lord, don't let me walk and stand and sit in the congregation of sinners that blaspheme your name, that bring a reproach to you. I remember one guy goes to a church in Redlands, a packing house, a Calvary Chapel, and he congratulated two of them publicly for the wedding anniversary. Congratulated two homosexuals for the wedding anniversary publicly. And by the way, another professing Christian officiated that wedding, two homosexuals, 12 months earlier. And these guys are absolutely loved by the alleged church. They're made to feel comfortable on their way to hell. And of course, when you have a Christian that goes in there and truly gives them the law and the gospel, who are they going to hate? They're going to hate me. We're no, longer, we're no longer going to be effective because we're hated. Paul said, if you, if you live godly in Christ Jesus, you will suffer persecution. Jesus said they will hate you. That even our own biological family members that aren't Christians might even plot to kill us, the scripture says. Moving on to verses 11 through 12 is affirmation of innocence and prayer for redemption. This is a tough study when you think about sanctification, growing us in holiness, but doing so without the attitude of a Pharisee, but the attitude of Christ, the attitude of David. But as for me, I will walk in mine integrity, redeem me and be merciful unto me. It reminds me of Joshua twenty-four fifteen. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As for me, I will walk in mine integrity. Christians, our salvation was not our choice, but our sanctification, Holy Spirit willing, Lord willing is. Whom we choose to walk with, stand with, and sit with, and associate with is a choice. We have free will in that area, and we know what God calls us to do. I love what John Calvin said. He therefore beseeches God to redeem him because being oppressed with wrongs and tempted in various ways, He relied only on God, trusting that he would deliver him. From this we may conclude that he was at the time reduced to great straits, 
he adds, be merciful to me, by which he shows that this deliverance flows from the grace of God as its true source, and we have already seen that the cause is often put for the effect. Close quote. And the last verse. My foot standeth in an even place, and the congregations will I bless the Lord. Church, are we standing on solid ground? Are we standing on the rock of our salvation? Are we plugged into the true vine of life, the branch on the true vine of the church, the the vine of Israel, the vine of the church in the Gospel of John 15? One way to, to conclude this chapter is with the words of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, and he said it this way, If you have prayed this prayer... That sounds, that almost sounds wrong. A lot of churches will end and say, we're going to pray this prayer. And if you really prayed that prayer, you're going in. No, it's not that kind of prayer. Spurgeon said, if you have prayed this prayer, if your character be rightfully described in the psalm before us, be not afraid that you ever shall be gathered with sinners. Have you the two things that David had, the outward walking in integrity and the inward trusting in the Lord? Do you endeavor to make your outward conduct and conversation comfortable to the example of Christ? Would you scorn to be dishonest towards men or to be undevout toward God? At the same time, are you resting upon Jesus Christ's sacrifice? And can you compass the altar of God with humble hope? If so, then rest assured, with the wicked you never shall be gathered. But your feet shall stand in the congregation of the righteous in the day when the wicked are cast away forever. End of quote. Father, thank you for your beautiful word of God. Thank you for David. Thank you for giving us these examples, Lord, that that have been laid before us so that we have examples to live godly in Christ Jesus today. Lord, help us through the power of your Holy Spirit, the power of your might, Through your word of God, help us, Lord, sanctify us, grow us in holiness, consecrate us more, Lord, from the world, that we would not have to wear a Christian t-shirt to be identified as Christians, that we would not have to wear a clergy collar to know that we're clergy, but they would see the difference, that we would be so set apart, that we would be salt of the earth and the light of the world, that the church set upon the city on top of the hill, bearing down your light of truth, your light of love, your light of wisdom. Oh, Father, help us as a church be more and more like you. And help us love each other as a local church as well, Lord God. In Jesus' name, amen.